0: people say, well, Chris, I don't know if life insurance is a great investment. I said, you're right. Don't think of it like an investment. It's a tool to prevent having your family worry about if you're not there anymore, if they can survive. And then it's a tool to save and grow the wealth of your family.
1: Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started! Hey guys welcome to ready to scale i'm ellie perlman your host broadcasting from the very first state to declare its independence rhode island let's talk about how you can invest in real estate and gain financial freedom shall we if you're thinking about investing passively in real estate and you want to learn how to evaluate a deal i created a free guide that walks you through the top five critical deal components that any passive investor Must examine, especially during COVID. So you can find it on my website, ellieperlman.com. Okay, so let's start the show. My guest today is Chris Larson. So, Chris is the founder and managing partner of Next Level Income and has been investing in and managing real estate for over 20 years. While still a college student, he bought his first rental property at the age of 21. And I know a lot of us say maybe not to others but to ourselves i wish i wish we started when we were in college so he's one of the few people that actually did it and from there he expanded into development private lending buying distressed debt and commercial offices so he's doing a lot of things which is Very exciting, very interesting. He began syndicating deals in 2016 and Chris actually raised more than $15 million and been actively involved in over 150 million of real estate acquisitions. Chris currently lives in Asheville, North Carolina with his wife and two boys, which I've met about a year ago in Colorado during a conference that we both attended. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks,
0: Allie, great to see you again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're in in North Carolina. It's a very interesting market. It's one of the markets we're actually looking into. Are you buying in North Carolina?
0: Yeah, we live in Asheville, which is a little bit of a smaller market for us. So we haven't focused once in Asheville. We certainly have properties in Asheville, but yeah, we're focused on some of the bigger markets like Raleigh, like Charlotte, as well as Greenville and Charleston, South
1: Carolina. Yeah. All great markets. So Chris, let's start with just telling me and the listeners a little bit about you know, your background and how you got started in real estate. And obviously we just heard that you bought your first real estate when you were 21, but if you can give a little bit more you know, color to it, that would be great.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm happy to share. And if you're listening and you want to learn more, I have my book on our website at nextlevelincome.com. Just click on the book link. But yeah, I talk about how I started at age 21 and a turning point for me, Ellie. So when I was in high school and college, I raced my bike and all I wanted to do was be a professional cyclist. So I was going to school for engineering. I was racing my bike. I thought I'm just going to get through school, race my bike for a while, be a professional and then come back and figure out like, what I want to do as an adult. A couple of things. One, when you race bicycles, you know, if you're not like a European level pro, like somebody like Lance Armstrong or at that level, you don't make very good money. And I wanted to have freedom and the ability to to have a life. So I always was entrepreneurial. I had a loft business in college. I sold wrapping paper when I was twelve years old, had a paper route, those sorts of things. And I had interest in investing. I was day trading in college. During my freshman, sophomore, junior years, kind of during this period where I was learning about investing, my best friend passed away. He's a year younger than me. So in between my freshman and sophomore year, uh, he died. I raced my bike for another year, kind of put my head down. It was my therapy. It was my outlet. After a year, I realized that I just wasn't, wasn't really enjoying it. I wasn't happy anymore. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't have any regrets in life. I wanted to live my fullest life. So my interest in investing and having some sort of business or capital while I was racing transitioned over into really my my new focus, which was having the freedom to live the best life that I had. And that's what drove me to buy that first property at 21. From there, I bought several more single-family rentals and I thought, hey, if I can just pay these off, I'll have a pretty good lifestyle. And that was my goal for several years until about seven years ago during another turning point. I looked at my portfolio and realized the returns I was getting weren't fantastic. And during a conversation at a business meeting with my wife, I was talking to somebody about apartment investing. I thought, that's eh, it's the same thing, but I, I do investigate it. And what I found was it was significantly different. Investing in commercial real estate, income producing commercial real estate, had the ability to be passive. I know you love all these aspects, cash flow, appreciation, and I saw some great tax benefits for high income professionals and we were doing pretty well my wife and I at the time so that was a significant benefit and over the next few years we transitioned our entire portfolio over into commercial real estate
1: That's wonderful so you you basically you know you saw the benefits of multifamily And that's a good segue to the asset aspect of the show you talked about multifamily and I'm wondering, you know, obviously the, I think the same in terms of, you know, the tax benefits, appreciation, etc. So it's funny because actually, if you think about it, multifamily has appreciation and depreciation. So you can use depreciation for tax purposes, but the asset appreciates if you push the income if you push the net operating income you know higher than it was when you bought it so it actually appreciates so you can sell it at a higher price even though the value of the brick and mortar the stones the whatever is built the the wood is actually for tax purposes deteriorating which is you know it's phenomenal chris what do you do during covid to protect your assets protect your multifamily properties
0: yeah so there's several aspects to this you know when it comes to Kind of protection. Number one is the residents, right? You want to make sure that the residents feel safe. They, you know, we're taking all precautions that we can. And if the residents feel safe and they want to stay in the property, that's obviously good for the financial security of the property. So we shut down a lot of the common areas in COVID. We've increased cleaning. You know, we've done things like host food trucks. Residents can, you know, they can have some sort of dining experience, but they don't have to go out. They don't have to leave the property, so they stay a little bit closer. You know, so those are the big things with respect to that. On the other side, like when it comes to evaluating properties or you know, if we're doing due diligence and you know, with the acquisition like we are during the process right now, we've been significantly more conservative. So if we may like the property we're in process of acquiring, we're assuming basically flat or no rental increases for a couple of years just because we want to be very conservative on a value add deal, we're increasing by 50% or more the timeline to turn units. And we're also decreasing the occupancy. So we're assuming that vacancies go up slightly. It's going to take us longer to turn units, maybe because residents aren't moving as much and it's going to be challenging to do that. And then also we're going to assume that there may be some pressure on moving rent. So we're trying to be conservative in those areas.
1: Yeah. I totally share your conservative approach. It's actually, if you think about it, it's safer to underwrite something now when you know what could happen than if you, you know, some sponsors underwritten the deal or some investors a year, two years ago, three years ago, and assume that in the next five to seven years, rents are going to keep increasing and this year might not be the case. So in that sense, it's actually, I'm not going to say safer to invest, there's risk in any investment, But I think it's easier to look at an underwriting and understand if it's conservative or not, because you're not assuming that rents just can grow year over year with, you know, for the next five years. And I think that's a great approach to just assume that rents are not going to increase, even though you're probably going to try and do it and, and see if this is possible. But for returns for the underwriting purposes, you're not assuming you can raise rents, which I think is, is a really, really good approach.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think the more challenging properties are the ones like we acquired a year ago that, you know, we're right in the middle of, you know, renovations and and moving rents. And that's obviously slowed some things down. It's definitely impacted cash flows, but I can, it's a lot better, I think, to buy it, you know, a dip in the market, which I consider the point that we are
1: right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Chris, I want to switch you know, gears and talk a little bit about strategy. One of the things that you're doing is infinite banking. So can you explain to me and the audience what is it exactly and, and how do you use that strategy to build your family's wealth? Because I know, you know, you're a father of two and obviously you're concerned with creating and building wealth, growing wealth for the benefit of your family. And I think that would resonate with a lot of our listeners that are in kind of very similar position to yours.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's a great strategy that I started learning about just over 10 years ago. So I was a licensed insurance agent. I was working for State Farm. This was when I was finishing my MBA. And what I learned then, Ellie, is a lot of people hear, oh, buy term and invest the difference. And that's fine if you're, you know, if you're kind of following the Dave Ramsey's and maxing out your 401ks, paying off all your debt. But if you want to create true wealth like I talk about in my book, you need to invest like the rich. So I actually rewrote my book. I added a chapter. It's chapter three. It's called Your Opportunity Fund. And what I learned about 10 years ago was that if you carefully structure life insurance, you can structure it to minimize the fees. You can structure it to maximize the cash value. And it's really interesting. It's almost like real estate in the sense that you have a set premium amount that you're paying for a period of time. And like let's say you're 30 years old as I was and you say, okay, I'm going to have a paid up policy at age 60. It's kind of like a 30-year mortgage. Well, during that term of that policy, your equity increases and the cost stays flat. And what's interesting is you can pull that equity out. You can pull that cash value out just like you can with like a home equity line of credit. So you have equity that increases, you have the ability to pull money out. And what I talk about in my book is you can use that money in two places at once. So what you can do is you can use that money for an emergency fund. You can use it for paying for a car. You can like self-finance, essentially, instead of going to a bank. Then you can pay yourself back. You get the interest instead of the bank getting the interest. You can also use it for things like paying for college. So a 529 plan is great if you're saving for college if you want to be in a tax-efficient way. But what if your child gets a scholarship? Or what if they decide not to go to college? So I have a friend and he said, I wish I knew about this because my son decided he didn't want to use it for school. That, that presents a challenge if that money's stuck in an account that has to be used for college. So you can use it for that. And then my favorite, and what we've been using is using that money to finance cash flow investments specifically in real estate. So if you can borrow out of these policies, and again, it has to be a properly structured policy. If you can borrow out at a net 2 or 3% interest rate, it's like pulling money out of a uh, out of your own residence and invest it, and get say five, six, or seven percent cash return, and have growth on the back end. It can be a very powerful way to basically arbitrage that. And you know, I'm, I talk about this in my book. Don't think about it like an investment. You have to think about it like a savings account. I say it's like my supercharged savings account because people say, "Well, Chris, I don't know if life insurance is a great investment." I said, "You're right. Don't think of it like an investment. It's a tool to prevent." having your family worry about if you're not there anymore, if they can survive and then it's a tool to save and grow the wealth of your family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really really smart strategy and, you know, I've been working with several family offices, which are offices that have they've created an enormous amount of wealth and that's what they do. They borrow money even though they have a lot of money, especially now during COVID, a lot of them are sitting on piles of cash their strategy is usually exactly like what you mentioned. They borrow money at a low interest rate because they're strong borrowers. They invest this money and they're basically, you know, they borrow two, two and a half, three They're making five to 8%. And the delta is just pure profit on money that it wasn't even theirs to begin with. That's right. And that's the beauty. It's exactly the opposite of what Dave Ramsey is is lecturing. I mean, if you look at the wealthiest family in the world that's what they do they actually use debt to create more wealth and of course there's a risk in any investment of course if you take you know if you borrow 50 100 200k and the investment goes sideways something happens you're not going to see the money but what about all the other investments it's i think in certain investments even today, losing your principal is kind of an extreme scenario. The, a more reasonable scenario is if you invested and instead of getting 8% or 7% return every year, you got five or you get four. But to lose your investment, that would take, I think, a very, very extreme situation you know, to happen.
0: Yeah, especially in a lot of the investments that we talk about, Ellie, which are, you know, they're stabilized assets. They're typically backed by like Fannie or mm-hmm. Freddie, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans, you know, agency debt. They're stabilized already, you know, talking about multifamily, people always need a place to live. So yeah, if you're if you're properly underwriting deals, I agree. Like a lot of these investments have a high degree of safety. And, you know, one of the interesting things is if you borrow against your cash value and your life insurance, you're very flexible in paying it back. You don't have to qualify for it. You don't have to, you know, and go through underwriting for a loan, you do this for the money, the bank sends it to you, and you can pay it back on your schedule or not pay it back. And think about it from the opposite side. So life insurance companies, a lot of them own a lot of very high quality real estate across the country. What's even more safer than that? A loan on their policy holders, where they hold the opposite side of that policy, right? So if you have a million-dollar policy and you borrow $100,000 and you never pay it back, the insurance company just deducts that from the proceeds that go to your family. So it's it's very safe. The insurance company has to invest to get a return to provide for cash flow for the business and the operations. So it's, it's a win-win on both sides.
1: And Chris, in this strategy, is there kind of a limit to the type or size of properties that you can invest in?
0: No, it's all based upon the cash value of your policies. So, there's a couple different ways to do it. The way we did it and started out was we just put money in consistently every month until our cash value grew. You can also you can fund like you could take $100,000 and put it into your policy and then pull that money back out. It's typically not one for one the first year because there are fees associated with it. You're paying for insurance. So, there's the cost of that insurance. So, that's something to consider. But typically if it's structured properly, you're going to break even. Within less than five years. And then at that point forward, essentially the insurance is paying for itself. So, you know, I tell anybody that's considering the strategy, you know, don't think about it like, okay, I'm going to do this today. You know, I get something for nothing. I'm just going to put the money in, I get free insurance and, and take money back out. It has to pay for itself over a period of time. But it's up to you. You can put 100000 in, you can put a million in, you can fund these policies at small and monthly. You can structure them so you can dump extra money in like we did when we got. Bonus checks, for instance, from my role as a medical device rep. So they're very flexible. And the key is you need to work with an agent or a group that specializes in this. So one, you work with the right insurance company, you have the right policy, and then you have the right mix of policy components. So you have the flexibility to do this. It's not, you know, don't just walk down to your local insurance agent and, hey, this is what I want to do. Sometimes they can do it if they can chances are they're not specialized in in this sort of strategy. And even worse is they say they can do it and then you don't have the ability to borrow against these policies in the right way.
1: Mm -hmm. How long have you been doing this?
0: We started our policies a year before my oldest son, Ethan, that we were talking about earlier in the show that you met was born and that was in 2009. So we've had our policies. Actually we're recording in October, it's been 11 years.
1: Wow, all right. Yeah, it's not something that I've heard a lot of investors talk about. It's mainly either you invest actively or you invest you know passively in a syndication, so that's really interesting to learn and and I love learning you know new concepts of investments, and it enriches my world of how you can and it's another way of investing, which was really interesting you know to be exposed to.
0: Some people may be listening, and say, "Well geez, Chris, you know you say you know you got to have it it's got to be structured this way, and you have to speak to the right agent." we have a video and a white paper on our website as well. So that's under the banking link. So if you are interested and you want to learn more, you can check that out. And again, there's there's a lot of different groups out there that can do it, but we have some resources on our website to help you educate yourself if you're interested.
1: That's great. All right. That's great. I want to talk a little bit about the process of evaluating deals during COVID. We talked about a little bit earlier on how you underwrite a deal during COVID. And obviously, you know, right now, and we're recording this in October 2020, there are more deals out there than they were when COVID just hit, or when we became aware of COVID around February or March. There are more deals, there are more buyers that are back in the market. I mean, we were buying, you're actively buying as well from a passive investor's point of view what would be your recommendation for someone who's looking at a deal and he's considering maybe two or three different deals from two three different syndicators and on paper you know many deals can look really great the numbers look great what would be your advice for kind of the first you know few steps in evaluating a deal from a passive investor's point of view during covid
0: Yeah. So Ellie, I think it's a super question during this time period. And I would say there's really three things to look at. One, you need to be comfortable with the market you're investing in. You need to be comfortable with the operator you're investing in. And then you look at the actual deal and the specifics within that. So let's kind of walk through those things. Number one, if you're an investor, we moved to the Southeast because of the strength of the demographics and the fundamentals over 12 years ago. You know, we wanted to move in, into an area where there was kind of this rising tide, like I talk about in my book, where people are moving and fueling job growth, and you know, also real estate prices, right? Which also fuels rent increase. If you're in the multifamily market, you want to be in a diverse economic base. So you want to make sure that the cities you're in, you know, don't have an, a, a tremendous adverse impact from COVID, like maybe New York City or something like that, where people are exiting, they can't do business like they used to. You want to be in a diverse economic base. Number two. If you're talking about the operator, you want to make sure that your operator is comfortable in these markets. They have executed in these markets before, and they've also executed in the type of assets. So, one thing that we've done, we've started to look at deals, Ellie, that are a little bit higher up the food chain in terms of resident quality. So, what I mean by that is, you know, what we've seen, and we started doing this over a year ago because looking at kind of the economic cycles, we had some concerns with where the economy was going. We wanted to make sure that we had higher average incomes in our property. So, you know, if you talk about the difference between a $40,000 employee and somebody that's making $60,000, dollars or $80,000, the chances of an employee that's making $40,000 losing their job during a market like this or being able to make their rent is higher than somebody that may be a white collar worker, maybe they're in technology, maybe they're in healthcare, and they can work from home or they're not going to lose their job. So, one of the things that we've added is we're doing Basically, a residence during our rent roll due diligence to see, okay, who is at risk? And we kind of rank that risk. And what we've seen very closely is that if we say 2% of our residents are in a high risk demographic, Our collections are typically about ninety-eight percent. So it's very interesting how our collections have tracked that risk profile. That's a specific tool that we've been using with respect to that. You know, I talked about the kind of the quality of the deals that we've been looking at. Uh, The challenge you face is, you know, normally we'd bring our entire team on site and we'd be doing due diligence. And now you may not be able to do that because there's restrictions on travel in the property. So we've had limited teams going in to do due diligence, and we've been doing more things like video, like drone footage, using other technologies that have been out there, but we haven't necessarily been using. It's Frankly, it's more fun to be doing stuff in person. And I've still been going to the properties and touring them, but maybe not going through all the units like I used to. Maybe doing more of a look on the interiors and then focusing more on the exteriors and relying more on that technology going inside.
1: Yeah, things have definitely changed and due diligence is you know a lot more challenging than it was. You need to wear, you know, hazmat suits before you send, you know, you have to have your team wear those before they go in and, and review the units because how do you do, you know, unit walks? You need to walk all of them. I think one interesting question from a passive investor would be, you know to inquire a little bit more about the level of due diligence that you've done during covid, some buyers are okay with not walking even one unit, and you know that's an enormous amount of risk in my opinion that you're taking and Some buyers are walking all units, and that's basically what what we've done, but we do it a bit differently. It's four or five different teams of one person, so they're not exposing the entire community so It's in and out very quickly with all the hazmat suits, spraying, you know, Lysol. So there's a protocol of how you do it. And then in between, you have basically buyers that are visiting, I don't know if a handful, but X percent of the units and taking a risk on the other, you know, portion that they're not walking. So I'm not saying that one way is better than the other with the exception of not walking any unit. I think it's a lot more risky, but it's important to understand what level of your diligence, the syndicator or the sponsor was making because there's gonna be surprises and in every deal. There are surprises and you want to minimize, you know, the number of surprises that you're gonna face once you close.
0: That's right. And I, I think your approach is spot on, Ellie. You know, we've we've basically gone to minimizing the side teams that are doing this. And whereas, you know, the entire team, we might have like 10 people walking these units. Now, like you said, it may be one, maybe two that are doing this, and then the rest of the team is relying on you know their input and some of the technology to do that. So, and that minimizes obviously the risk to our team, but also it minimizes the exposure on the property and make sure that, you know, anybody that's there on the property is comfortable as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well. Interesting times. I can't wait for this whole period to be over. It's definitely challenging, but it's also intriguing and fun and exciting. It's all of the above when you're dealing you know, with a new deal that comes your way, especially now during COVID. And we're actively buying in the market. You're actively buying in the market right now. And I think you're absolutely right that the focus on the population, the, the tenant and the kind of immediate area, the strength of that immediate area is super super important if you know you thought that 40 or 45k a year as a, as a median household income could be an okay area to invest a year ago now there's a big question mark around it because these are you know this is the population that is going to default and not pay rent for the most part more likely than someone like you've mentioned is making 70 or 60 dollars a year that's spot on
0: and i think if you're an investor you know it's good to say hey maybe yeah, you know, maybe I need to, you know, moderate my expectations on returns. If you're nervous about that, Absolutely. you can say, Hey, you know, would I be okay if my returns were a little bit less? And I think if you as you go up the spectrum, if you say, Hey, if my resident quality is higher, and maybe there's a little less upside, maybe there's a little less value add, but my returns are going to be more stable. So as an investor, you just have to ask how much risk you're willing to take at this point. And you know, that's up to the individual investors. But I think you know, we kind of have talked about some things that can help make that decision.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Chris, so we have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Go for it. <laughs> All right, so I think I already know the answer to the first one, but what's your favorite hobby? I'm
0: still a cyclist, so it, now that I have kids, it really is. It's kind of a ability to get out and get a little me time. And I live in Asheville, which is just, I mean, if I look out the windows, right now, it's just gorgeous this time of year. So I feel very, very blessed to be in this, this type of environment to ride.
1: All right. Second question is, what's the one thing that people don't know about you?
0: One thing people don't know about me? Hmm. My wife's Canadian. That's a little interesting.
1: <laughs> Where did you meet her?
0: I met her in college. So uh, she was born in Montreal, but she's lived in the United States most of her life. So I joke around. I say, I, sometimes I say she's Swedish. She is Swedish, but so I said, Oh, she's from Sweden. She's from Canada, but who knows? We'll see how things go in this country. Maybe we'll move back to Canada at some point.
1: <laughs> All right. So what do you wish you had known when you just started investing in real estate? You know, in your case, when you were 21 years old.
0: I was given some advice about commercial real estate, about going to man- like, manage commercial properties. And I really do wish I knew the differences between owning commercial real estate versus residential. You know, starting at 21, great, but if you can go back and do it the right way for all those years, it would have been even greater.
1: All right, what's the number one advice that you have for real estate investors who basically they you know want to get in the business or scale their real estate business?
0: Yeah. Look, Ellie, I, I love what you do with your podcast. I think the best advice I have is if you're an investor and you want to grow, you want to scale, you want to learn, work with somebody like you, yourself, Ellie. I think being an investor, that's how I started. It's a great way. you know. Start as an investor, partner with somebody, learn the right way to do it. There's a lot less downside than just swinging for the fences, doing that. And you know, I always talk about the value of a mentor. So if you want to grow, find somebody that you can emulate that's achieved the success that you want, reach to them and work with them. That's going to help you do it not only faster, but also minimize that downside.
1: Yep, absolutely. All right. So Chris, where can our listeners, where can they find you if they want to reach out to you and talk about investing?
0: Yeah, so we try to make it easy. It's all next level income. So nextlevelincome.com. dot com. You can get our book, Next Level Income, at the website. Just click on the book link, as I mentioned, Ellie, You can also click on the banking link to learn a little more about the infinite banking. And if there's a specific question you have for me, it's Chris at nextlevelincome dot com.
1: All right, awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was, you know, great seeing you again. I hope that you and the boys and your wife are going to be fine. You know, during COVID, it's definitely challenging times. And hopefully we'll meet again, right? Probably after COVID. I hope so too. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Stay healthy and happy up there. And congrats on the move across the other coast. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much. All right. So that's what I have for you guys today. Be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. And I'll see you on the next episode.